0: Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that you have given us. Thank you that you have showered us with the common blessings of rain this morning. And then as we have come into your house, you gave us the special blessing through the word and the sacrament this morning. Lord, we thank you for these gifts that you have given us. You are truly a good God to us. And Lord, we also know that we can always come to you for help through your Son, Jesus Christ, who never ceases to be our intercessor. Even when we don't know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf through the Son, your Son, Jesus Christ, our elder brother. Lord, we thank you that you have given us these gifts, and we thank you that we even now have some time to, to think about your word and to think also about the world that we live in. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. So the last few times I've been up here, we did some work on Handel's Messiah, but I'm done with that. Um, If you want more, we can maybe talk about it offline or something. It's still fascinating to look to the rest of the Messiah and the the wonderful scripture passages that it brings about the life, work, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we figured um, the consistory as well as Reverend Brown and I have been having a lot of conversations over the past week about what to do for adult Sunday school moving forward. So what we're going to do is for the next three or four weeks, we haven't quite nailed down the, the end date of this, we're going to talk about Islam, especially given the events of the last week. Be good for us to at least know a little bit more about Islam, what it teaches, and things like that. Beginning sometime in February, maybe the beginning of February, Reverend Dr. Horton is going to do a series on ordinary. It's a book that he just had written about the ordinary Christian life. We think that will be very beneficial for us to go probably about five or six weeks through ordinary. Quite often, we think to be a good Christian needs to do extraordinary things, you need to do all these things. But then you know, looking at God's Word, it's quite often just the ordinary things that make us um, good Christians and to be faithful to our Lord and Savior. It's just to be ordinary. So Reverend, uh, Dr. Horton's going to be talking about that. That'll, yes, John? It is published. Um, it's, yeah, so you probably can go on Amazon or West Bookstore and get a book. Um, maybe Dr. Horton can maybe get us some at a discounted rate. Maybe we can talk to him about that, twist his arm a little bit. But yeah, it is published. It's just a little book. I don't think it should cost very much. But All right. I don't have connections anymore, um, but we'll try to work that out. Yeah. Well, that's a good idea. So when, he, when that time comes, we'll try to get that book available to you. That's true. So if, uh, if I forget, just go on Amazon and order it. Um, but I'll try to see if I can work something out. Yes, Dan. I was going to say, you're going to be up there, maybe. Um, email Dan Palmer. His, his, uh, his email address is in the bulletin. He's going to be up there for a conference um, this weekend. He could just grab it. He could sell, you know, buy out the bookstore of the book. Um, so, yeah, let Dan know. Um, maybe just buy a few just to have. And, um, yeah, good idea. Um, then that'll bring us into probably mid March, middle, end of March. And then uh, Reverend Brown's going to do a series on marriage. Um, for about four or five weeks, and then it'll bring us into April sometime, and we'll figure out what to do in April and May to close out the year. So that's kind of just a brief overview, so you have some idea. Uh, I know the last few months have kind of been, what are we going to talk about today in until Sunday school? Uh, so hopefully this will give us a little bit of a direction about what to talk about. So as I mentioned, this next few weeks we're going to talk about Islam. And I need to say from the outset, I'm not an expert in Islam. Um, obviously, you know, going through classes, we, we hear about things, but this is going to be a learning experience for all of us. And there might even be some of you here that have, you know, first-hand knowledge of uh, Muslim teaching and Islam in general. So by all means, raise your hand if you have anecdotes or other things to share uh, to have a kind of a, be a discussion. So what I'm thinking about doing today is kind of an overview and a history of Islam and its rise. And then over the next couple of weeks, more their theology compared to our theology, um, more of their teaching, their ideology, and things like that, that we hear a lot about in the news um, these days especially. So it would be good for us just to reflect on those things. But again, if you have questions uh, that I can't answer, I'll look for the answers at some point and, and get back to you. But I need to say from the outset, I'm no, I'm no expert. Um, but Lord willing, we'll be able to get through this uh, together. So any questions on our what we're doing moving forward here for the next couple of months. All right. Well, let's get started. So first, the history of Islam. And we, don't, we all know, just you know being in this world, Muhammad. He is the, the first prophet of Islam. He was the one that founded the religion. He was born in 570 AD. 570 AD. He was born in Mecca. And Mecca, if I can kind of draw um, a very crude drawing of the Arabian Peninsula. This is um, Egypt's over here, Nile River, the Sinai Peninsula, Israel's up in here. Mecca's down here, kind of off of the Red Sea. And so that's where Muhammad was born in 570 A.D. And this was actually a religious center for the Arabs in in the area. It had the uh, Kaaba which is that black cube you've probably seen in pictures. sitting in the middle of the city. There's, you know, the roads all go around it. It had that only back then. And what was contained in that cube were the 360 idols of the region uh, housed in that black cube. So it was obviously a very central place, and people made pilgrimages there probably once a year for the surrounding area to worship at this cube, the kebab. Uh, Every tribe in Arabia had their own idol represented there, so they would make that pilgrimage. And it's quite possible that the tribe of Arabs that were in charge of keeping that black cube was the tribe that Muhammad was a part of. And so he had very intimate knowledge of what was going on, and they kept care of that kebab. And just a fact by saying that there's 360 idols in that cube kind of gives you a little idea that this was a very polytheistic culture. Polytheistic means many gods. We're a monotheistic religion. We have one god. Uh, one god, three persons. So this was a polytheistic culture. And at some point during Muhammad's travels, he, would be, he was a, um, a merchant. He traveled up into Syria, which is up into here. And he came into some contact with some early Christians. You know, this is just a few centuries after you know, Christ had ascended and the church was just beginning to grow. And he first had this, idea thrown to him about monotheism. He was grown up in this polytheistic culture, and here he's coming face-to-face with the monotheistic culture of Christianity. We don't know exactly how much this played into it later on, or his forming of Islam, but the Christians that he came into contact with probably weren't Orthodox, especially Orthodox as we know them from Nicaea, which happened in 325, and some of the other councils following that. So these probably were some heretical sects, um, or at least not orthodox sects in that time. Uh, remember that the early church was kind of really largely built around these councils, trying to figure out, especially the Trinity, who is Christ in relation to God the Father, who is the Holy Spirit. So there was a lot of you know, work being done in the early church to figure out what was going on. What did the Bible say about the Trinity? And so he happened, Muhammad, happened to come, into contact with some of these groups that were probably not orthodox. Um, But yet he heard about monotheism. When he was 25, he married a wealthy 40-year-old widow. Um, They were married for 25 years. This was significant, most likely, because once he married this wealthy woman who came from money and her family, he really didn't have to work anymore. He didn't have to go traveling up to Syria as a merchant. He can kind of relax sit back, contemplate, think about the great questions of life. And eventually that comes to the rise of Islam a few years later. So he's married for 25 years to this wealthy 40-year-old widow. And he spent a lot of his time contemplating, as I mentioned, life and religion, especially those claims he heard in Syria about this Christianity, about this monotheistic religion. He just had time to think about it. Growing up in a polytheistic culture, he didn't really hear of anything else. So he had time. So then around 610 AD, he starts to hear voices. Uh, he's 40 years old by this time. He's been, he's been married for a few years. So he, he has these voices that come in. At first, he's not sure what they are. Maybe they're just these, these spirits that have possessed him, these worldly spirits that have come in uh, to his body and possessed him. He wasn't sure what these voices meant. About about three years of wrestling with these voices in his head, he kind of figures out, well, this is Allah speaking to me. This is God speaking to me through Gabriel. The angel Gabriel was speaking to him in these visions. And what those revelations end up being are the Quran. So these revelations that he received from Allah through Gabriel, he writes down and to the Quran, which is obviously the holy book of Islam, which we'll get into more in the next few weeks about what that looks like. So once he figured out that these were divine revelations, he then needed to go evangelize. He needed to go essentially preach this message, tell the people what this message is that he's getting from Allah to go into the world and teach that. So he goes to the, the Arabs and pretty much says, well, there's no other god but Allah. So all these 360 idols that we have, they're heretical, they're false gods. You've been worshipping false gods, and you need to turn from them. And then he even began to say so much as if you don't turn from all this polytheistic religion and culture that you've been part of, you're going to go to hell. You're going to be, you know, spend eternity in hellfire. That was his first message, and he does get some followers. First and foremost was his wife. Uh, that wealthy widow who he married became his, his first follower, and also he had an uncle and some other friends that kind of gathered around him. As you can imagine, coming into a very polytheistic culture with people that were making pilgrimages once a year to, to worship their idols, to have somebody come in and just say, you're all going to hell for worshiping these other gods, didn't quite go well for him. Thankfully, having his wife and, her, and his uncle being very wealthy, they offered him, him some protection. So initially, there was a lot of resistance, but he was able to be protected by these wealthy families in Mecca. But then in 620 a. d, his wife and uncle die. So 610 a. d, he gets visions, 620 a. d, his wife and uncle die. So again, these are the ones that were providing a protection. He doesn't have a huge following at this time. Um, maybe a few hundred, but he was being protected by those families. He gets word that people are trying to assassinate him. And he attributes this to Allah, giving him a vision through Gabriel that he needs to flee. Uh, so he and his uncle, or actually he and his, uh, sorry, his, uh, a friend and his um, cousin, they flee to Medina, which is probably about, about here. So this was Mecca. Medina. So he flees north. He had heard that there were some families up there that were sympathetic to his cause, and they offered him protection while he was up in Medina. So he flew, he fled there with about a hundred people. And this fleeing is called the Hijra. So he flees. H i j d a, Hijra. Well, actually, R a. Sorry. My Arabic isn't very good. It's called the fleeing. He flees up to Medina. And this is where actually they start year number one for the Muslims. So it's 622 A.D. by everybody else's calendar, but it's year one. So kind of a foundational time. If you're going to Start your calendar at a date. It better be significant. Uh, So his fleeing to Medina is very significant. It's year number one for Islam. And the town of Medina had a very large Jewish presence. But it was very politically unstable. The tribes weren't getting along. There was really no authority. Uh, It was just really a mess. So when Muhammad came, he pretty much came in and took over the city. He stepped in and took control and he kind of started a theocracy slash dictatorship. Uh, when, when he arrived, he took advantage of the instability. And so it's here kind of where Islam began to define itself politically and legally, uh, which we're very familiar with today, as we hear in the news what you know, Islam is doing. Very political and has its own legal system. So that's where this starts, is really in 622 when he flees to Medina to, and takes over the city. Uh, But then things don't go well for him. In 626 A.D., there's a large army of 10,000 men that come from Mecca to conquer uh, Medina. But 3,000 members of an army that Muhammad was able to get were able to hold them off. They dug a big trench around the city to stop the army, and it it worked. And the the people from Mecca turned back. Uh, But in retaliation for this attack, Muhammad began to attack the Jews, who he accused of conspiring with the Meccans. Um, they were trying maybe to take over his control. So he started to then attack the Jews. In 630, the, the roles were reversed. Muhammad gathered an army and went and actually conquered Mecca in 630. The things look like they're going well. He's got now the town of Mecca. He's got the town of Medina. He's got a big army. But then in 632... So just two years after he conquered Mecca, Muhammad dies. Well, you can tell he's only 62 years old, and it was really sudden. He actually died of an illness. And, again, you can imagine, you know, this religion's really only been around for 22 years, uh, and he was it, but he dies suddenly. So there's kind of a big void left in, in Islam. Initially, though, the, the people of Islam were united around what was going to happen. And it's called the Age of Rashidun, or Rightly Guided Ones. And Muhammad's close companions were still able to keep control of everybody and kind of lead them through this initial period. And so they also had what were called the caliphs, And the first one, you might have heard that name before, too, caliphate, the rulers of Islam. So the first caliph um, was Abu Bakr, who was a humble and a moral man, who he then, he was able to consolidate Muslim rule in Arabia. And so Muhammad dies, and people started to figure, trying to figure out what's going to happen, what's going to go on now. In the very beginning, this Abu Bakr was able to at least keep things stable. He was a very humble man, which probably helped and he united uh, the, the Muslim rule in Arabia. The second caliph was under this guy named Umar. I'm not going to pronounce the rest of his name because I can't. Um, He was a brilliant military general. He had a very brilliant military mind. And in ten years, he pretty much conquered most of the the Middle East. Egypt, Syria, Israel, Palestine, and Iraq uh, all fell to uh, Umar. So only within 15 years of Muhammad dying, Islam is beginning to spread rapidly. Uh, through especially this, these, conquer, these conquering armies of Umar. Um, Umar ended up uh, being assassinated, and we'll get more into that in a little bit. So, this golden age, this age of uh, Rashidun, it lasted until 661. And that was when his cousin Ali died. And Ali is a very significant figure in early Islam. Um, mainly because of the idea of who's going to lead us from then on. Ali was Muhammad's cousin, also his son-in-law. There's a lot of weird marriages that went on in there. Um, So he he forms a a significant figure, and we'll say why in a second. So now we have these caliphs that go on for about 30 years, ruling Islam. It's, It's spreading really rapidly. But when Ali dies... Now who's going to pick up the throne? Now who's going to be the leader of Islam? Well, there's two sects that arise, and these are probably two sects that you are very intimately familiar with, at least if you listen to the news. First, the Shia. They believed that Muhammad named Ali as a successor. Before Muhammad died, they figured, they thought he told Ali he's going to succeed him, which he eventually does. Therefore, leadership belongs in Muhammad's family. Shia, leadership within the family. And who are the other big sect? The Sunnis. Leadership by the community. they figured, well, let's all just get together and we'll elect our own leadership from the community. It doesn't have to be a, a member of the family. We could be another really strong Muslim that can lead our group. That, and they said that Muhammad didn't name a successor. The Shias thought Muhammad did. Again, he died very suddenly, so there wasn't a lot, you know, his last will and testament probably wasn't drafted yet. But the Sunnis didn't think that he named a successor. So they figured that they can make one, they can appoint one uh, by any of Muhammad's companions and those who are you know, faithful Muslims, Sunnis comprise about 85% of the Muslim world today. It's a very significant faction or sect. Shias are about 15%. Most of the rest of it, there's another, a couple other groups in there, but the main ones that we hear about, especially today, are the Shias and the Sunni. Um, there's more diversity in theology and legal views. Uh, in the Sunnis, which you can kind of imagine, if you're going to start you know, drawing from the community a very broad reach of who your leaders can be, there's going to be a little more diversity of theology and, and, ideo- and ideology. The Sunnis allowed these, these caliphs to be their leader. Um, anybody can do it. The Shias, their leaders are the Imams. Both politically and theologically, their leaders are the Imams. The Sunnis they have imams, but they're just they're more prayer leaders. Uh, Their political leaders and real theological leaders are the caliphs. So you might even hear those terms being thrown around, and that's where those come from. All the way back in the middle of the seventh the century, these began. So if you have a, a division between where the leadership is, you're also going to have a division of where your authority lies. Uh, for the Shias their authority is only from the Quran. Just the words that Muhammad wrote down, those are the authoritative words. Um, For the Sunnis, it's other traditions as well. Again, they're not so tied to this specific line coming out of Muhammad. So other traditions, other scholarly works can be included into into the equation about where their authority lies. Again, this is a division that came right away from the division after that Ali uh, Caliph died in in the middle of the 7th century. But I want to go back to uh, this, this. any questions so far. I won't be able to answer. I'm going to go back to this man named Umar again. He was that second caliph that came. He had that great, rapid expanse of Islam. And what he sets in place is familiar to us today. Some of the things that he did, we would recognize. And as I mentioned, he had this broad expanse. And so, as he did that, he needed to put structures into place for the establishment of the religion. So he appointed provincial judges in all the areas that were conquered, so he started to have rulers of Islam in those different places. And he also established regulations to govern the observance of Quranic teaching. So you're spreading this religion, and you want people to be faithful, so you start putting in guidelines. This is what you need to do to be faithful. So the first regulation that he puts into practice is a pilgrimage to Mecca. And Mecca was that first city that Muhammad went to, Um, That's where that black cube is located. And he started to say, people need to go there. That was the hub of Islam. The second thing he he taught was the observance of Ramadan. All people needed to take this month to fast. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a little while. And he also said there was a punishment of idolatry and drunkenness. He wanted people to be good followers of Islam, and he was going to punish any idolatry or drunkenness uh, in those other places. So the pilgrimage to Mecca and the observance of Ramadan—those two things that Umar put into place—we would recognize as some of the pillars of Islam. And we'll talk about that. With the other three pillars of Islam are in a little bit. The other big thing that Umar did was he gave Christians and Jews this a certain status. He called them people of the book. And what book was that? Well, for the Jews it was people of the Torah, and for the Christians it was the whole Bible and some of the New Testament. The interesting thing is that they were not forced to convert. We might think that would be strange today when that's all we hear about, you know, maybe a more militant Islam, that you're going to put people to death if they don't convert. Initially, that wasn't the case, at least not under Umar. They were not forced to convert, but if they didn't, they had to pay a really special tax, and it was a really hefty tax. Uh, It was called the the jizya. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but we're going to go with it. Um, They had to pay this. It's kind of like, you know, this is what you need to do to stay in our land. Otherwise, you'd have to leave. So Omar put that into place. but He died in 644 A.D. And it's thought that he was killed by a Christian slave. And you can imagine a Christian slave had not a lot of money. And the the culture of that time, especially amongst the Jews and the Christians that were poor, They couldn't pay this tax. They were being really oppressed, just trying to scrape up the money to pay this tax, and so he killed uh, Umar. So that's how he died, before the next caliph comes into place. Um, But again, we have those ideas that were kind of brought forward by Umar that went on. He also established, before he died, a council that would name his successor. So Umar was a Sunni. Figured we need to have a council of other Muslims to decide who the successor is going to be. So he put that into place before he died. So again, even we're in this period of Umar. We heard some other guys in this age of this golden age. And if, you know, looking back, you know, 1,500 years, it doesn't seem to be that golden. There's a lot of, you know, uprising. People were being assassinated during this time. But yet it was a big spread of Islam in the first few decades of its existence. So it really was um, a golden age in terms of its getting more adherents and having a lot more land. But in 656, we have what's called the Fitna, which is the Civil War. It was the first civil war that was especially between the Shi'a's and the Sunnis. And if you kind of been paying attention, you can kind of tell that it's kind of ripe for a civil war. Um, Who's going to lead us? A very big question, especially always been throughout history, and people have fought many, many times over who's going to be our leader, what's going to be our authority. So in 656, things kind of come to a head with the civil war, and that's what the Islam, Islam Muslims call the Fitna. Yeah. Any questions so far? Yeah, Dan. I think mainly now the Shias were kind of around Mecca where Muhammad was and his family. Um, I can't, I don't remember reading where far they spread, but I think they're more local to those patriarchal places. Those big cities for. I mean, again, 85% of Muslims are Sunni. Uh, I think most of the Shias are more located in the Middle East. Yeah. You know, I don't remember who won the Civil War. I'll have to look into that. I thought it was kind of a big deal. Um, they, it, it is a big deal. I just don't remember who won. Right. Right. Could be. Yeah. Lenore, did you have a question? Yeah. It was a special tax that Christians and Jews had to pay to stay in the land that was conquered. Yes, Well, all Muslims needed to pay a tax. Muslims need to pay a tax, and it's part of one of the pillars of Islam uh, to help the poor. And just to pay for the kingdom, right? We, we, we pay taxes, but the people of the book, Jews and Christians, didn't need to pay that tax. They needed to pay this tax just to stay in the land. Otherwise, they'd be kicked out. Maybe they'd be killed if they didn't pay it. Um, but when you're conquered by an army, you have to obey with what they say. That's what they—that's what they imposed on them. And apparently, it was very heavy. It was a very an oppressive tax. Any other questions? All right, we just have a few more minutes, so I'm just going to give you the um, the headings for the pillars of Islam, and then we'll probably we'll discuss more of those um, next week. But these are the pillars of Islam. They they do unite the Shias and the Sunnis. They agree on these. So the five pillars. First one is what's called pledging one's faith, or the Shahada. And this is essentially the, the confession of faith. Uh, there, is no God, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. Um, it's the first pillar of Islam. Everybody needs to say it. If you're converted to Islam by saying that and actually believing it and trusting what you have said in the presence of witnesses. Uh, so it's a profession of faith, the first pillar of Islam. Um, and then you and that's used not just at your conversion, but it's used throughout your Muslim life, is to rec- recite the shahada. Then it's the salat, which is ritual prayer. Uh, Muslims are required to pray five times a day: uh, dawn, midday, mid-afternoon, sunset, and at night. The third pillar is a zakat, and this is charity to the poor. Got to kind of mention the they're taxed a certain amount that also was supposed to help uh, the poor. So that was part of what they needed to do. Four, salam, which is fasting during the month of Ramadan. We'll talk about more of these um, next week. So that whole month of Ramadan is to to be a fast. And finally, hajj, which is a pilgrimage to the city of Mecca. Uh, once once in a Muslim's life, they need to go to Mecca. It's been a lot easier now that we have air travel. But it used to take people months and years to make this one pilgrimage, and a lot of people died on the way. Um, now it's a routine event for many Muslims just to hop on a plane from like, land in Mecca. So these are the five pillars of, of Islam that they all need to do throughout their lives. Yeah, done. You c- you can have like an exception if you're like you're sick or you just can't. Do it for some reason. There are ways. Um, I read something, and I forget what it was. But you might have to pay some more tax or give more to the poor to make up for it. Um, but yeah, so they kind of have wiggle room in there. But you're supposed to go. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of religions that do that. I mean, they have these, these central places that are so significant and special. Yeah. We have a significant place too. It's here in Santee. And we have one, you know. Next door, you know, we we don't have that, do we, yeah, Angela? Right. Once in your life. Yeah. Freddie. Yeah. Right. Who leads and what's the authority? Right. Exactly. Yep. All right, well, if you have any more questions, oh yeah, Kim. Next week I will. I don't want to say something wrong. Yeah, good question. I'll I'll look into that. Well, let's, all, let's uh, pray and then we can uh, be dismissed. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself in your word and we have the access to that uh, so bountifully, especially in this day and age where we can read your word, and we know that it is true, and it is trustworthy, and Lord, may that be authoritative in our lives, as we we know that there are many religions that claim to have the truth, but yours is a revealed truth that has stood the test of time, it interprets itself beautifully, and Lord, it continues to amaze us that you have spoken to us through your word, and Lord, even as we think about some of the other religions of this world, especially those that are rising up so so much in our day and age. We don't know what this means in your grand plan, but we do know that you are in control. And Lord, as we, we study these things over the next few weeks, may we just have more and more confidence in your word as it has been revealed to us in your son, Jesus Christ, who has saved us from all of our sin and has made us free in you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. No, it's just a the Mecca. There might be like one route to get there for some people, but I think it's just a just Mecca, yeah.